Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold. Part of that sentence, it's going to be a great second hour coming up. I want to thank both Pastor Rich Mercouris and Kim Weir for being such great guests in hour one. Very, very lively. And if you are a pastor and you're listening and you would like to be a guest on the show, you should email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. Or maybe your pastor is someone that you think should be on this show. You can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. Dot com. I'd like to investigate that. I have a three to five year vetting process. So, you know, hopefully we'll get him on the show in the next five or six years. Anyway, coming up in this hour, David Wheaton's going to be joining me. We're going to continue this outstanding series he got us started on called The Book of Beginnings and how relevant it is for today. We're going to talk about Genesis chapter four today. That's the story of Cain and Abel and about bitterness and murder and all that kind of stuff. So this can be a great Great half hour with David. Let's take a short break and be right back. We love hearing from Faith Radio listeners. It's easy to get in touch with us through the Faith Line. When you call 877-933-2484, listen to the greeting, and then press the number 1. Then leave a message for a show host or general manager, Neil Stavum. You can also ask a question about upcoming events, and the event coordinator will contact you. Or if you'd like information on a specific program, you can inquire about that as well, and the producer of that show or another staff person will get back to you. Another way to access program information is through MyFaithRadio.com. Look under the Programs tab for specific show information, including recent guests and topics. Again, the number for the Faith Line is 877-933-2484. That's 877-933-2484 or 877-93-FAITH. Give us a call anytime and leave a message to stay connected to Faith Radio. happy to talk to my friend David Wheaton. TheChristianWorldview.org is the place to go visit him and hear his podcast, buy his books, and read his blogs. He's an outstanding uh, man of faith and a great husband and father and an all-around exceptional good guy. David, welcome. Hey, welcome. Uh, Thank you for your welcome, Bill. It's good to be with you today. I'm not all you said about me, though. I'm just a, a sinner saved by grace. I can't live up to all that. <laughs> yeah, I knew that would kick in. All right, let's go back to our book of beginnings. I'm having so much fun with this series, and I think it's a, a great place to start um, the new year, and now it's already February, and we're still in it, so this is great. It, it really is. You know, as you read Genesis, you think, oh, well, it's so way back then, what, four, four to 6,000 years ago, it was written by Moses, and you think, how is that relevant for 2020? But as you begin to dig into it, I mean, right from the very first sentence, the first chapters, it is so relevant uh, what what is in Genesis for us today. You know, last time we talked about uh, the main, you know, the main aspects of Genesis 2 and 3, there's this perfect creation, and then it transitions to the the first sin ever committed by Eve, and then by Adam, and everything changes. God created the perfect world, and all of a sudden, 
it's corrupted through man's sin. And we see the, the, the effects of that all over the place. We see it today, the, the sin and the, the conflict and the disease and ultimately death and you know, everything that goes on in the world, fallen relationships. It's all a result of our own sin nature, which started uh, at the time of Adam and Eve. So we see that one sin that was started in the garden that God didn't put an overly restrictive test on Adam and Eve. He said, you can eat from all the trees of the garden except for that one. It was just a, a test of faith. And this isn't an overly restrictive God. This is a God who gives man free will to worship him. And he, he tests us by, by saying, here's a test of faith, of obedience. And are you going to, to obey me uh, in this one small regard, regarding eating from this one tree? Well, of course, Adam and Eve don't. They, they, they decide to do what they want to do, ultimately, rather over what God wants them to do. That's always the, the temptation we face. Whenever we face temptation, it's always a choice of one of two things. Am I going to do what my flesh wants me to do right now, or am I going to love God more? That's always the test. And unfortunately, they, they chose very badly, and uh, it, uh, it, it came out very badly for them. The, the consequences were disastrous. You know, sin never, sin and temptation never offer what they they promised they're going to offer. Things got very bad for them. There was pain in childbirth from then on and conflict in marriage. Work was made harder, and ultimately they physically died. And uh, But even in that chapter, just to conclude the little review portion from last time, was that there was good news. God is amazing. You know, in the midst of this bad news of the first sin and how it corrupted everything, there's good news here where it said that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife to clothe them. It's like, well, why does it say that? Well, that was the first picture that something had to die. Something died in their place. They deserved to die, but the animal died in their place to offer them its skin so they would, their nakedness would be covered just as later on, many, many centuries and generations later, Jesus Christ would come to die for our sin and cover us with his righteousness. So in the midst of this bad news in, in Genesis 3, there's good news that this Redeemer was, was going to come in the future. Mm-hmm. So as we move forward then, David, let's talk about uh, the effect that this had on um, Adam and Eve's children. Yeah, so now sin's in the, in the world, it's corrupted everything, and not only is sin is in the world, but it's being passed down from Adam and Eve to their, their progeny. You know, we're, we're, you probably heard it said, we're sinners by nature, you know, by, by the Bible says, for as in Adam all die, mm-hmm. so also in Christ all who believe, I'll add that part, will be made alive. In other words, just because we're born of human parents, we're sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by choice. So we're guilty all around. And you see that right away with Cain and, and Abel. And interestingly, with Cain and Abel, the, the sin with them came from, or with Cain came from, and, and he, was, he was the starter of the first false religion. You know, Cain decided to bring his own offering of produce when God had already established to them, it wasn't recorded in the scripture, but he must have established to them that God wanted them to bring the the first, the, the best of their flock, make an animal a blood sacrifice, because it would, again, it would point to the future blood sacrifice of Christ for sin. But Cain thought he had a better way, and he brought some of just some produce rather than an animal sacrifice. And it goes to the point that God desires obedience over sacrifice. You know, Cain had no doubt he was sincere, he was maybe passionate, maybe he had good intentions, but that didn't matter to God if you approach God on your own terms rather than on God's terms. And it reminds me of that situation in, in the, the book of 1 Samuel when 
when Saul is told out when he told to by God to go when he fights the Amalekites to to kill them all. Don't bring anything back. We need them utterly destroyed. And people will call this genocide. That's another point. But this is the command of God. These are a sinful people that God wanted to destroy from the promised land. And Saul doesn't do it. He 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 brings back the king alive of, of uh, Amalek, uh, Agag. He brings back some of the best of the sheep and oxen. And then when the prophet Samuel confronts him about it, says, you, you didn't obey. You didn't. God didn't tell you to do this. He told you to utterly destroy them. And, and Saul says, well, I, I brought them back because I wanted to sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel's response is like, look, the, the Lord doesn't doesn't honor. He wants obedience over sacrifice. And it's the same thing, I think, in our own lives when we can be well-intentioned and, and so forth, but we can't approach God on our own terms. We need to look into his word and see how he wants us to approach him. He's ultimately the, the final arbiter of how we are to approach him. That's such truth, David. You know, then you look at Cain's response when Cain is now uh, angry and downcast. So not right. being obedient will produce um, turmoil in your life. Yeah, I mean, look look at the chain of what happens. So uh, Cain chooses to bring, to go his own way, to start the first false religion. You know, in other words, I'm going to approach God, make my own religion. I'm going to have a sacrifice, but it's going to be the way I want it. Mm-hmm. So that disobedience then led him to being bitter because he was he was angry when God didn't accept his sacrifice. It said uh, the Lord had regard for Abel and his animal sacrifice, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. It says that in Genesis 4, 3. So what happens to, to Cain? Well, he went his own way. And then the next chain, the next link in the chain is he became very angry and his, and his countenance fell. In other words, have you noticed how you can almost see sin on the face of people when you're unrepentant over your mm-hmm. sin? It affects oh, yes. your eyes and your face. And then this is what happened to Cain. And, and, and God noticed this right away. So why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. In other words, this this chain, this de- descent is going one after the other. Disobedience leads to bitterness. He's, he's Then it leads to anger. And then eventually, what's anger lead to? It leads to, to murder. Now, it, it doesn't make any sense. Why would Cain be angry at Abel? Abel wasn't the one who rejected Cain's offering. It was God. But Cain, like many people who reject God, hate those who obey God. It's just right. a fact of life. It convicts them in some way. And so murder is the end result here, and it's always a hate crime. It's a result of hate. So if you don't confess, if you have bitterness in your life against someone, and if you don't confess and forgive people 70 times seven, it takes, the Bible says it takes root inside of you, like a, like a, like a, like a weed. And then that root grows and it takes hold of you. And eventually that bitterness turns to anger and it turns to like a simmering anger. And eventually if that's not controlled, it turns into what happened to Cain and Abel or Cain murders Abel. Mm-hmm. So there's always this consequence to sin and Cain would, would be a wanderer from then on. He would be a marked man, but God was still gracious to him. He let him live. Uh, there should have been capital punishment for premeditatively killing his brother, but God was gracious and let him live. So there is there is even some good news in the midst of this sinful, sordid scenario. Uh, scenario. Yeah, David, Rebecca, and I were talking about uh, this prior to the segment starting, when it says, "But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it." And I thought, wow, what a powerful word that God has given uh, Cain, that he has a uh, responsibility to rule over the sin in his life. Yeah, and we can. 
it, sin doesn't have to sin doesn't have to have dominion over us, as it says in Romans chapter eight. We can, if you are saved, you are given the Holy Spirit. You are given the resources to help you overcome sin. So you're given a new nature. You're giving you're given the Holy Spirit. You're giving the the Word of God, which you can now understand. Uh, you're given the armor of God. It says in Ephesians chapter six, you have these resources that God gives you so you can master sin. It says in, in Romans, I think it's chapter eight or chapter six, that sins shall not be master over. For you've died to sin, but you're alive to righteousness. Sin shall not be master over you. So we don't need to feel as Christians powerless to sin if we use the resources God gives us, the power of the Holy Spirit, obedience to the word, uh, our identification with Christ and his death and victory, resurrection over sin. When we have those, we can master it. Yeah, and David, it feels very relevant for today when it says, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. That's pretty relevant for today, isn't it? It is. It's vivid. We all know that. If you're a believer, if you're anyone, you know that. I mean, you you, we can never be perfect in life, first of all. You can never perfectly master sin, but we should know as believers that sin and temptation are powerful, and we have a fallen nature even when we're saved. We still have it. There's something, as long as we're in this human fleshly body, we still have a fallen part of us that is susceptible for falling. It, the Bible says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So it, there's this attitude of, you must know that you're you're never going to be beyond sin. You can fall. And so it's, it's this attitude of, of suspicion about your own fleshly nature, but at the same time, confidence that God can help you overcome because no temptation is overtaken you, but such as is common to man, the Bible says, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. What a great promise from God that we can overcome temptation in our life. Oh, fantastic. David, I'd love to skip the break, but I don't think I can. So let me take 90 seconds. I'll be right back with David Wheaton. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. All right, David Wheaton is my guest, and I'm looking at that passage, David, and thinking about the bitterness that Cain had that led to anger, which led to murder. Yeah, it's it's an unbreakable reality that that is the case. I mean, like we talked about, all murder ultimately is a hate crime. It starts with hatred in someone's heart. Uh, which comes from bitterness. Uh, bitterness is like the simmering resentment that we can harbor in our hearts for someone else. And if that's allowed to simmer, it takes root. It actually just it sets up shop there and begins to infect us. And if we don't confess, of re- repent of that, and if we don't have a forgiving heart for those who offend us, um, you know, we're going to build more and more bitterness. Relationships are broken. Things will never be right. And uh, it, it actually... It's interesting that when we're bitter against someone, we often think we're hurting the person we're bitter against. Mm-hmm. But in reality, we're really hurting ourselves the most because of what it does to us. And that's exactly what happened to Cain here. He got bitter, then he got angry, and then it led to the first murder, the murder of his own brother. David, it also looks like uh, the Lord was interested in his response. Because when he said to him, where is your brother Abel? His response is, 
Wow. Am I my brother's yeah. keeper? Right. Yeah. You know, of course, the wrong attitude, you know, almost smarting off to God. You know, <laughs> God didn't need to know strategy. where Abel was. Of course, he God had seen. God is omnipresent. He saw exactly the moment that Cain killed Abel. And, and Cain did the same thing, by the way, his parents did when they were <laughs> confronted by God in the garden. The same thing we do. We try to hide from God. We try to rationalize our sin. Uh, we try to blame it on someone else. You know, Eve blamed the serpent and, and Adam blamed God for giving him his wife, Eve. You know, just look, when we sin, take ownership of it. Just the, the best way to go is to confess, agree with God, confess. That's what it means. Repent of it. Turn away from it. Pray to him. Ask him to help you go in a whole new direction and help you to next time around give you power to overcome it rather than give into it. Mm -hmm. This whole bitterness thing, because there's a lot of people that have some bitterness in their life, and they think it's something they have control over, or they're bothered or, by it, but not to the degree that they want it out of their system. Or they have a right to. They have ah, exactly. a right to be. I have a right to being bitter because someone's really hurt me. And you know what? That legitimately is true. People hurt us in ways that we don't deserve. We didn't ask for it, and people just hurt us. But we don't have a right to that. You know, it's, it, it's like. It's that you, if you think you have a right to be bitter and angry, well, how about Jesus, the perfect one? He never did anything wrong. Mm -hmm. He lived a perfectly sinful life, and yet he was crucified in the most unjust uh, moment in human history. So if, if he went there and he wasn't bitter and he wasn't angry about it, what right do we have to be for the other far less— uh, far less offenses that we withstand on a regular basis. It's so important to be contemplating this regularly, isn't it? I mean, again, Genesis, how relevant is oh, this for so us today? So relevant, yeah. All right, David, what else do we find in chapter four that that we would call relevant for today, even though I think <laughs> yeah. it's all relevant? It, it is. I mean, another one is all of a sudden in, in the text, Genesis four nineteen, it says Lamech, who was now we have more people multiplying on the earth and so forth. So Lamech was an offspring somewhere of Adam and Eve. I'm not sure how many generations hence. But anyway, Lamech took, took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Adah. The name of the other was Zilha. The, so the, here we have in human history the first recorded instance of a non-biblical form of, of marriage. We have bigamy for the first time. Mm -hmm. now, interestingly, in the news right now, and if you've seen this, in Utah, they're, they're considering in Utah— trying to either decriminalize or do something with polygamy now in Utah. So we're still battling this today. And again, this was a, a, a very early rejection of what God had clearly established as marriage. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. That is God's desire, intent, and definition of marriage. It says in Genesis 2, 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It wasn't man with man. It wasn't woman with woman. It wasn't one woman with two men or vice versa. It always ends badly when we redefine God's, in, God's fundamental institutions like marriage, where he established this very early on, super relevant for us today. And by the way, it's not just polygamy and same-sex marriage and these kinds of things. It's the same thing with when we break the bonds of what God, the covenant that God designed, whether it's an unbiblical divorce whether it's living together outside of marriage. He's kind of marriage-like relationships that aren't done according to the way God established early in Genesis, extramarital sex. All of these things are a perversion of God's design that took place in Genesis chapter 2, and things always end badly. We always suffer the consequences, and other people get hurt when we violate God's clearly established 
uh, beautiful relationship between one man and one woman that he established right at the beginning of time. Again, I go to, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. There it you desires go. to have you, but you must rule over it. So the power of sin has been broken. As believers, we get to then have choices. We do. And we live, I mean, how great of a God do we worship that he gives us choice? He's not, we're not robots. He gives us choice. There's a test of faith. He establishes, like, for instance, we're talking about now what marriage is. Are, are we going to follow that? Are we going to hold to that? Or are we going to do what we want to do? That's really the, 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 the question that we all must face in our own life. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, David, what about um, the chapter as it ends? I know there's always good news, and let's talk yeah. about it. Yeah, I mean, God is just a God of good news. I mean, here, here in chapter 3, we get the first sin enters the world and the terrible consequences of that for Adam and Eve and all that all that we feel today. You know, all creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth and together until now, we groan within ourselves, Romans 8 says. So we feel that. But at the end of that chapter, there's good news that God's going to—he pictures what he's going to do with Christ someday by killing this animal and, and covering— Adam and Eve, even though they didn't deserve it, they didn't merit it, God still reached out and did that for them. Most the same thing in chapter four. Here we go through this murder of Cain and Abel and bigamy and all the other things going on here in chapter four. But then it ends by saying Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Uh, and, and here we have uh, Seth that, you know, Abel's dead, Cain's gone. You know, how do you think Adam and Eve are feeling at this point? You know, two of their sons, they may have been twins, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't know that. But anyway, their two sons, at least that are recorded in Scripture, are out of the picture. You know, can you imagine what parents feel like result of that? But God is gracious. Again, here's the good news, that God gives them Seth, by the way, through whom the future Redeemer, Jesus Christ, would come through the line of Seth. So God, in the midst of a bad situation, all of a sudden is turning things around for our good and his glory. But not only that, Bill, we, the last, very last sentence of the chapter of chapter 4 of Genesis said, then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And it's sort of this odd sentence, like, what does that mean? Well, all of a sudden, people, as they multiply, they begin to realize their own sinfulness. And by the way, that's a good place to be. You don't want to be in a place where you don't even know you're sinning or you're rationalizing your sin. That's the worst place to be. You want to be in a position where you realize your own sinfulness, so you, the next question is, well, how can I be made right with God? And, and to realize that this God is a God of forgiveness and second chances, and that he offers, he offers forgiveness and reconciliation and eternal life when we put our faith in him. Now, back then, they didn't know about Christ, but they could still believe in God and his revelation and trust God. It was a test of obedience, like Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him to righteousness. They believed the, the rev, as much revelation that God gave them at the time, and they were saved. In the same way, now that we have further revelation that Jesus Christ came from God to pay the penalty we deserve to pay for our sins, so that when we repent of our sin or put our faith in his work and not our own works for forgiveness and eternal life, God forgives us and saves us and makes the relationship restored to him. David, thanks for doing church with me. It's been great. It's great to talk to you, Bill. Right. Thank D- you. Yeah, bet. David Wheaton's been my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David. Of course, we'll take a short break and be back in just a minute.
Well, I'm very excited to have Dr. David Murray on the program. He's a professor of Old Testament and practical theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He's pastored uh, churches in the UK and the US over the last 23 years. He's written a number of books, uh, Jesus on Every Page, Christians Get Depressed Too. Very interesting. Very excited to have him on. David, welcome. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be with you. Yeah. And you're, it seems like a incredibly interesting person. You probably know how to perfectly grill a steak too, don't you? <laughs> That's actually something my wife is better at. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be honest. Okay, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Okay. Uh, because you're an Old Testament guy, and we just got done talking about Genesis chapter 4 in the previous segment, and a listener just jumped in with a question. I thought, well, I could get David to answer oh. this one. All right. I'll yeah. do my best. Yeah. Because uh, uh, talking about uh, Lamech uh, having two wives, and the question that came in is, why did God bless those who were married to more than one wife, like Jacob, like Solomon? Yeah, I think it was a, a temporary matter, uh, given that the uh, the the people of God were still so weak, and they hadn't been well taught, and the effects of sin were you know, very, very strong. I think what Jesus basically says of these times in the New, when he looks back on it, is it was a, a time of weakness in the people of God, in the church of God, and God temporarily um, dealt with them in, a, in supreme loving kindness and mercy, but that's not to be the norm for all ages. So it's an allowance, uh, a divine condescension to human weakness for a time. Mm-hmm. Great answer. And do you feel like you just got grilled yourself? <laughs> I think I escaped barely singed. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, I'm so fascinated uh, your Old Testament perspective on Jesus on every page. Uh, you're, you just want to encourage all of my listeners to spend more time reading the Old Testament, don't you? Yeah, I do, actually. I think it's a, a greatly neglected part of God's Word. It's about 65%, 70% of God's Word. And I think we're we're very malnourished if we don't um, feed on mm -hmm. the whole Word of God. And I think it also uh, damages our view of the New Testament. I think we need the Old Testament to shed light on the New and the New to shed light on the Old. So I think we're losing out a lot by neglecting the Old Testament. Yeah, which was the only Bible Jesus had. Yeah, exactly. I know. And the New Testament church. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I would love for you to uh, just, I, I know, just lay out some of the the ways to seek and find Christ in the Old Testament, like your book says. Yeah, I mean, I, I really begin with Jesus himself, because I think that's what the Bible directs us to do, and his view of the Old Testament, and his view, along with Peter's and John's and Paul's, was that that it's all about Jesus, that the, the scriptures testify of him, that uh, the Old Testament is repeatedly pointing people forwards to Jesus, just as the New Testament points people back. So that's really my starting point. And then I just go through uh, different genres of the Old Testament, like prophets, narratives, poems, and trying to show Christ um, in the creation and his people, in his appearances as the angel of the Lord, in the law, um, in the types, the pictures, the covenants, and so on. So lots of, lots of areas to discover Christ. It's, it's really as if it's, a, it's like a bonus gospel, the Old Testament, that most people haven't really discovered. Mm -hmm. How does God's uh, law point to Christ? 
Um, I think in a number of ways. It partly depends on how you define law. So in the um, Bible, law is sometimes just the Ten Commandments. Other times it's the ceremonies as well. And then other times it's the whole of Genesis to Deuteronomy. So I think if you take the ceremonies, obviously the sacrifices and um, the, the tabernacle and the, the feasts point to Jesus in different ways. Hebrews tells us that. Um, if you look at the moral law itself, I think that's a, a reflection of God's character. Um, it's something that only Christ kept perfectly. So when you're reading the moral law, you're really reading about the character of Christ, his perfection and his sinlessness. And it also points us, I think, towards heaven, because heaven is a place of uh, perfect holiness and uh, where Christ is seen in his people as well. So I think when we read the law, we're reading about the, the the kingdom of heaven and what we're looking forward to. And I think the the fact that Jesus died for sin. Uh, so when we read the law, we, we discover uh, the sins that Jesus died for, therefore making him more precious to us. So, um, David, as we look at uh, the way that we, we discover Christ, we can do it so many ways through the Old Testament. And I know you talk about creation being one of them. To me, that's like one of the most wonderfully obvious places to discover Jesus. Yeah, I know. And again, if you go to the New Testament, John 1, Hebrews 1, both of these books open by telling us that Jesus was the creator of the world. So when we're reading Genesis 1, we're not just reading about God in general, we're, we're reading of Christ in particular. He is the one who created all things. He was God's executive, as it were, the, the one through whom God created the world. And therefore, it's it's got his fingerprints all over it. He's, he's really making the world that he would one day redeem. He's making even the the wood that he would one day be crucified on, the metal that would be one day driven through his, his own hands and feet. And, and the people who would ultimately uh, crucify him, and yet he makes that scene, he makes these props, he, he fills that stage with all the elements of redemption and then appears many years later to endure suffering at the hands of the very things and people he made. So, David, when we look at the Old Testament and we look at so, so many of the incredibly complicated and rich characters of the Old Testament— mm -hmm. How do we discover Jesus in those Old Testament characters? Yeah, sometimes it's difficult, isn't it? Oh, my gosh, um, yes. <laughs> well, you know, I think, again, let's start with the New Testament. The book of Hebrews tells us that these Old Testament characters, for all their flaws, were actually men and women of faith. And it doesn't focus on their flaws. It focuses on their faith. And they're there to be our exemplars and our motivators and inspiration. And, it's, and it mentions some surprising people. It mentions Samson. It mentions Gideon. It mentions Jacob. Um, so I think that gives us a lens with which to view these characters so that when we are looking at them, we're, we're actually looking at people who, with all their faults, looked forward to the Messiah in faith and and were saved on account of that faith, not, not because of their uh, theism, or their sacrifices, or their law-keeping, but just as the New Testament church, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. 
And that's one way to think about the Old Testament believers. I think also God designed these Old Testament believers to be pictures of Christ, not in all their lives or all their characters, obviously, because there were parts that were very flawed. But again, New Testament tells us that um, a greater than Solomon is here. Uh, Hebrews tells us that Christ is a greater Moses. Uh, Corinthians tells us he's the greater Adam. And he's obviously repeatedly portrayed as the greater David. And so we, in the, in the good areas of their lives, in their offices, and in the ways in which they, um, they followed the Lord and fulfilled his will, these are ways that God prepared his people for the coming Messiah. It's kind of like, you know, look out for a character that combines the best of all these men and women. Mm-hmm. David, when we are talking to people and we're trying to get them engaged in God's Word, and they say to us, well, "Where? What should I start reading?" You know, nobody uh-huh. usually says, "Well, head over to Leviticus and get started." <laughs> we usually say, "Well, read the Book of John." Uh, but if we don't understand the Old Testament, we cannot very well connect the dots in the New Testament, can we? That's correct, and that's why I would always say to people, I would say start with the New Testament, like you said there yourself, um, with John or Mark, and but then go to the Old Testament and read Genesis, say, or or the Book of Psalms, and then go back to the New Testament, read another book, because I really believe God's designed His Word so that the old sheds light on the new, and the new on the old, so that if we combine it, um, each shedding light on the other, that over a period of time, we will we will grow knowledge of both testaments, and and through that, our, we will grow knowledge and love for the Lord. So, when we look at Old Testament law, and I know this is difficult for uh, people to sometimes study and spend time in, um, how do we discover Jesus in in Old Testament law? Yeah, I think you know, as I said a few minutes ago, obviously there's the fact that. Jesus himself was the perfect embodiment of that law. I mm-hmm. think I think I think more than anything that's that's the greatest revelation okay. of um, the character of Christ. And and I think without the law we're not convicted of our sins and therefore we don't see the need for Christ. So the more that we we feel our contrast with the law, we we confess our sins and we see our need for Christ and the beauty and wonder of Christ far, far more. Mm-hmm. I've been uh, reading Exodus uh, mm. the last couple of mornings. I was in Exodus 36 and 37 and getting all the dimensions and mm. everything else. When you go through that, uh, David, what, what? how do you process all that? <laughs> yeah, I, the way I try and do, Bill, is I, I, I try and live it as an Israelite. So so we've got the, as you said, the, the sort of the laws. But I think... You know, the people who lived at that time, the Israelites, it was it was life for them, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the, the festivals, and it was very much a major part of their life. So I try to I try to um, imagine the laws in action. So I try to envisage what the tabernacle and the altar and the laver and the table of showbread and things like that. And just think about how did a believer interact with these pieces of furniture or with the Passover Mm. or with the Feast of Tabernacles? And yes, sure, a lot of the Israelites had no faith and it was very ritualistic and just formal religion, but there were true believers amongst them too. 
And with the help of God and the Holy Spirit and uh, Christian instruction by the priests, they were able to connect and commune with God through these things. And so I think if we try and think of ourselves as Israelites, hard though it is, and you know, going to the tabernacle with these questions, who is God and what's his salvation like? Well, here's God's biggest visual aid he ever made to help us. <laughs> I know? love that. Yeah, I love that. And so that's that's kind of a, it's a bit of a childlike way to do it, but I think that's the way into the profound truths that are there. And he designed it for a childlike people mm-hmm. uh, who were very immature in faith, and and yet designed it very wisely so that they would learn about him and his salvation through these. That that was their Bible, really. Mm-hmm. David, as an Old Testament scholar and person who's spent a lot of time studying, t- tell me about an old uh, a prophet that you just can't get enough of. And that would have to be either Isaiah or Hosea. Okay. Uh, Isaiah obviously is a is a much bigger book, and it takes a lot more. Um, what would you say? Yeah, a, a bigger brain to really grasp it. It's so huge, but it's so full of gospel, especially chapters forty and onwards. Just so full of prophecies of Christ and his his sufferings and his glory. Um, and then Hosea, I think, I just love the, the story there that, that the prophet Hosea enacted, uh, marrying the Gomer, um, who was a prostitute, and then seeing her going off and prostituting herself again, and yet being told, go and love her by God. And, and just I just feel it's just such a beautiful, astounding, shocking picture of God's love uh, for for me and mm. for all his people. Um, and so I never tire of, of Hosea, and especially these first three chapters. And um, I love Isaiah, these servant songs so full of Christ. I love it. Dr. David Murray is my guest, and he's written a number of books, and we're talking about Jesus on every page. 10 Simple Ways to Seek and Find Christ in the Old Testament. But there's a lot of stuff I could talk to him about. He's a deep well, but I've only got a little bit of time left with him. So let me take a short break. And when we come back, more with Dr. David Murray. Dr. David Murray's my guest, and am I loving this time with him. David, I have a question for you. How authoritative is the Old Testament in the life of a New Testament believer? Well, I would say it's as authoritative as Christ himself indicated, uh, given that it was the book that nourished him in his human nature as he grew up. It was the book that he preached from. It was the book that the apostles preached from. And um, it was in no place does Christ undermine the Old Testament. He says he came to fulfill it, not replace it, mm-hmm. um, but, but you know, further it and expand it and, and bring more light to it. So it's, it's authoritative, as, as authoritative as Christ himself makes it so. And he, he himself said he didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Mm-hmm. And then how would we go about seeing Jesus in the uh, Proverbs? 
Yeah, the Proverbs are fascinating. I've actually just begun a, a sermon series on them as well, which I'm, I'm really enjoying. Uh, the, the Proverbs have a number of ways to, to see Christ. Again, I think we want to start with um, Christ himself, describe himself as the wisdom of God. And so did the Apostle Paul describe him as the wisdom of God. So you've got to ask, where are they getting that from? And the primary place they get that from is is the book of Proverbs. That's the, the primary place up till that point where God's wisdom was revealed. And so when we're reading Proverbs and we come across uh, the character of wisdom and descriptions of wisdom and, and little encapsulations of wisdom, we're really coming across uh, Christ himself, uh, who is the wisdom of God. He's the one behind that book. He's the one revealed in that book. Uh, he's the one that speaks in that book. Even in chapter one, wisdom is depicted as going after souls and wooing them and winning them and warning them. And and therefore, we, we see from the very beginning of the book, uh, wisdom, and then especially in chapter eight, uh, where Christ's creative work is described and his role as the wisdom of God in the creation. So in these ways, as well as the fact that the, all the Proverbs are really um, practical applications of the moral law of God, and therefore, if Christ is in the moral law, he's also in the Proverbs. So speaking of Proverbs, and I know you probably love Proverbs, do you have uh, one that pops into your brain more regularly than others? <laughs> wow, that's a good question. Um I love I love chapter eight, although it's not classic proverbs in the sense that it's not lots of little pithy sayings. Um, so that's that's a beautiful passage that reveals Christ, and he, he speaks of how he was by his father in the creation, and his delight was with the sons of men. So I love that little passage. But maybe if I was to pick a a really classic proverb, um, I. I do like the, if I can get the wording of it right, um, there's the proverb that says, um, a, a fair woman without discretion is like a pig with a diamond in its nose. And <laughs> <laughs> that's not an anti-woman sentiment, by the way. I'm assuming uh, it's not. <laughs> I think that's, you know, with all the proverbs, some of them hit men, some of them hit women, but it's really saying this applies to both men and women. And um, I just I just think it's such a, an incredibly vivid picture and, and an incredibly relevant proverb, because, you know, what is today's society and culture all about, especially our young people? It, it's about image. It's about appearance. It's about looking good. Mm -hmm. and it's always been like that. But with social media, it's even more so. And, and yet here's God saying, you know, you can have the male, female, you can have the greatest social media image and uh, the greatest number of likes and follows. And yet, without wisdom, without discretion, have a look in the mirror. It's like the face of a pig with a, with a diamond in its nose. And you kind of, it's a revolting picture and it's meant to be. Um, so, you know, take take good heed to that. So that, that's a proverb that appeals to me for some reason. At all. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> The proverb that I've been kicking around lately is 27.5, which is, uh, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Uh, mm. It's always kind of been interesting uh, when you want to bring 
and save someone from something so self-destructive. Um, but you also are going to be up against some kind of uh, uh, pushback as well. Mm, yeah. How, how do you? How would you handle that, David? How would I handle what, Bill? Sorry. This uh, this verse, uh, open uh, rebuke is better than hidden love. How do you? How do you um, understand that verse? Yeah, the open rebuke is something I do find hard personally um, to actually, you know, tell people the truth about their conduct or their character that needs changing. Um, I do quite a bit of counseling and I like the counseling that involves uh, comforting and encouraging. I, I don't enjoy the counseling that involves you know, telling people where they're wrong. And, and yet I'm called to do it. That's God's command there in that proverb. And it's saying to me, you know, whatever you feel, David, uh, you have to open openly rebuke people for their sins and, and seek to turn them away uh, to a better way. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. So how do we uh, take back the Old Testament if, if we're not engaged in it and we're not spending a lot of time in it? Um, what do we do? What's our step? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, a lot of it is to do with the pulpit, I think. So, okay. um, and, and not just the pulpit, but the teaching ministries of churches and Bible studies and Sunday schools and things like that. So I think, you know, if, if leaders would begin to use it more and show its value, I think, as, as one man said, unless the Old Testament is nourishing my students, I don't expect them to be reading it or preaching it themselves. And so I think it begins with how it's taught, maybe in seminaries especially, but also in churches. And if it can be taught in such a way that it does reveal Christ and it brings Christ to people and brings people to Christ, I think people will, will get excited about it and want to study it and read it and learn more about it themselves. And that's been my experience as I've gone around the country and around the world preaching Christ from the Old Testament. It's like people's eyes light up. They, they, they realize, wow. You know, it's a big part of my Bible that's that's dusty and cobwebbed, <laughs> and and yet, you know, Christ is in there. Let me at it, and um, right. it's exciting to see people discover that. I heard some—I uh, don't know who said it, but it, it was a description of the Old Testament. It's like a fully furnished room, mm. dimly lit. Right. Yep. And and the New Testament turns the light on. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's that's where I always try to encourage people to start. Go and look at what Jesus, Peter, Paul, and John say about the New Old Testament and, and take it from there. Mm-hmm. Let them turn the light on. Let them give you keys to understanding it. And you'll find the sufferings and the glory of Christ all, all through these Old Testament scriptures. So, David, uh, you're a new Old Testament scholar, but when you were 13, did you want to be an astronaut? <laughs> uh, no, I didn't. I I wanted I wanted to be a truck driver actually. Okay. Uh, when I was thirteen, and um, I wanted to do that for many years. In fact, I was an absolutely useless student at school. I flunked most of my exams and finished school a year early, and went went out into the world really, and just pursued worldly things until God, in His grace, arrested me and saved me in my early 20s, and sort of my life began properly in my early 20s. Yeah, and did one person share Christ with you, or was it a church, or a Bible study, or how'd that happen? 
I, I had been raised in the church, so I had, you know, truth in my conscience that I could never escape from. Okay. But it was really some hard providences. One of my colleagues died at work uh, from cancer, and another colleague ended up going to prison for um, killing a, a, a child in an accident. Oh, that he was he was drunk driving, and it, it, just a number of things showed me my own life was heading towards similar destruction and. Uh, Christ just, yeah, he put his, his hand on my heart and, and drew me to himself and showed me I needed forgiveness and I needed power over my sins, and, and he did it all. He did it all. Mm-hmm. Please tell me you'll come back on the show. You know, maybe <laughs> while your wife grills steaks, you can come on and talk to me. Does that work? Uh, that works well. Because, Thank you. Because yes. I want to I talk about you, some of your work on depression, too, because I know that's another sure. very interesting topic for many of our listeners because they more Christians suffer depression than they will admit to. Yeah, I'm afraid that is very much the truth. Depression and anxiety is an epidemic. Yeah, so don't play hard to get when we call you back, all right? Sure thing. Glad to do it. Okay. Thank you, Bill. You bet. Dr. David Murray's been my guest. The book we've been chatting about is called Jesus on Every Page, 10 Simple Ways to Seek and Find Christ in the Old Testament. That wraps up our show for the day. Thanks to all my guests. What a great, great day, great show. And have a great night, everyone. I will see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.